This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is an extraordinary storyteller and a winner of the coveted San Francisco Comedy Competition. He was born in Dublin, Ireland, and is now a globe-trotting comedian and kite surfer who has his own dry bar comedy special and best-selling book called Do You Talk Funny? His videos on social media have over 400 million views. Coming up is my dialogue with the patron saint of Irish irony, Dave Nyhill. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la. Thank you. I, I like the sound of that. Patron saint of Irish irony. I figured it'd be something you've earned. Yeah, well, I'll take it. it. It really bounces together nicely. I'll tell you that. And you got the kite surfing in there, which is apt because I'm about to disappear to Brazil for about a month. I find that an interesting combination, though. There's a certain amount of risk on stage that most people are afraid of. They think, oh, how could you stand up there in front of those people? But uh, alternatingly, you physically go out of that water. And I tried kite surfing one time and I spent my day face down in the water so it's a pretty ambitious sport isn't it it's ridiculously fun and it's probably the source of anything creative that's come my way in recent times because your mind just can't be on too many like you're not stressed about anything you're having a great old time and occasionally ideas pop into your head when you're kind of in that endorphin charged state and you do not worry as much about comedy because <laughs> you're like, I'm out here in shark infested waters sliding around between Costco freight container ships. I've definitely been like two and a half hours before show time. Like the wind just died under the Golden Gate Bridge and there's a Costco container ship coming towards you and they can't move and you can't move. So it becomes an ultimate game of chicken that you really didn't want to be involved in while you're sitting there in the sharkiest season. And the right. last thing on your mind is, I wonder what I'll say at this show tonight i was just happy to make it to the show the wind to kick back in you get out of there quick shower sometimes in a field down by the car park where you pack up the gear and straight down to the san francisco punchline and yeah just i guess comedy didn't seem as scary when you went through that in the build-up to it right so maybe that's your advice to young comedians join a bomb squad or something before <laughs> do something worse <laughs> yeah right to take the sting out of comedy I, I know that when i had been going through a divorce it, it was really hard to be funny you know because the day would be stressful but also it didn't seem to matter if the audience didn't like me like there was already somebody who didn't like me plenty. If you think this phases me, it doesn't. I don't really care what anybody thinks of me right now. Yeah, until you guys take a saucepan and hit me over the head with it and burn my bed out in the garden, I do not fear you. <laughs> right. When I met you, you were going by the moniker Irish Dave. I suspect that when you were in Ireland, you didn't use that term. <laughs> yeah. 
well, that that wouldn't work out. That would be like you'd be an American pat, and we'd be like, well, we we figured we figured out you were American, so I don't think that's necessary. But I wonder if other people called you that because they that's how they remembered you, or if you chose that moniker. They did. No, everywhere you go, you will get the word Irish added before your name in a lot of parts of America. And unfortunately, I already had three Irish friends called Dave. So then it just became default to Little Dave, Big Dave, and Fast Dave, <laughs> who, was, who was pretty good at running. The Irish Dave was a little bit of a piss take because my idea with comedy initially was, could I try and get over a fear of public speaking? By repeatedly doing comedy and you know if you hit people up hey i've no experience in comedy but i would love to come to your fancy club and bore the life out of innocent people there's usually not a very warm reception to that so the the slight ruse on the whole thing was that i was an irish comedian who just happened to be visiting america and overstaying his welcome uh, quite mm -hmm. seldomly <laughs> as it turned out uh, seeing i lived in america and i went by the name irish dave and it was at the time you could go on facebook and buy a couple of thousand likes for five bucks to make it look like you actually had some presence on the internet under the money from Irish Dave. So yeah, I, I was pretty big in Pakistan for a little while there uh -huh. uh, due to mainly imaginary bots <laughs> at, at that time. And I had a whole website and yeah, the name kind of became hard to shake, but at least people remembered it. Like they were like, oh, well, that's the Irish guy. We at least know who he is. And it, it led to me getting a lot more stage time a, a lot faster and repetitively. And it gave me a lot more, a lot more time to just experiment with the whole thing. So yeah, it was definitely taking the Mickey originally, but it stuck and was kind of hard to shake for a few years. <laughs> right. But you mentioned stage time. Let's talk about the importance of that because it is all about getting those hours and minutes under your belt and you know and just in terms of storytelling and managing the microphone and dealing with the interaction with the audience and you're particularly good in engaging the audience and recalling things from the comics before you but you can't do that the first time out when you took to the stage as a comic and not just a speaker or not just a storyteller where was that sort of first opportunity where you said i'm doing stand-up comedy it's a good question because I'm not sure I ever did. Like I never had a plan and I never really had a set list and I had a collection of stories that I thought were funny. And my idea was to treat stand-up comedy like a conversation. So I can be kind of funny and entertaining in every day. Well, I wonder, can that transfer to stage and mix those stories up with a couple of ideas I had? And because I was dyslexic, I didn't write anything. The more stage time I had, the better I was going to get. There was a direct correlation between those because every bit of ideation I was having, I was doing it completely live. But I never wanted to do badly. I, there's comedians that are, I've watched and I admire everything they do because they write something and it's amazingly written and they will just, they're willing to bomb until they get those words to work correctly. I remember a guy in San Diego, he was amazing. He was doing this bit about a cat and women hated this joke about a cat. It was an analogy as if you approach a wild cat you will know if it wants you or not by the way you grab its tail. It'll turn around and savage you or it'll just walk on regardless. And as an analogy, it just, it rubbed people up the wrong way, especially ladies who were listening to it didn't like being compared to a cat. And he said it took him six months to the point where people were like, we cannot book you on our show if you talk about that cat joke again for six or seven minutes. And he, he said, I don't care. And then he stopped doing those shows. And then when he finally got it to work, I did a comedy competition with him. And he was basically winning or getting to the final on the basis of solely doing that one bit that right. had taken him so long to work out. And everything I was doing was the total opposite of that. I don't want to experience people hate me on stage for 
my ideas and I was willing to watch the show and go, well, they're not liking this stuff and they're not liking this stuff. I think I have something else that will relate to them a little mm-hmm. bit. Or let me talk to them or just feed them anything that I find generally likable and go from there. And I think the style just emerged from that of just being yourself on stage, but it's directly correlated to the hours. And that's where the Irish Dave thing came in because they're like, oh, we have this touring Irish comic over. Let's book him for 45 minutes, even though I hadn't been cumulatively on stage for 45 minutes at that stage of my whole life. But that opens up the storytelling aspect because you're like, well, I don't have any material. I do have these nine crazy things that happen to me. And I think that might take 45 minutes to tell you them. Well, and you're a little bit of, of like a boxer because you are kind of bobbing and weaving with the night because you have a desire for them to appreciate you. You try to dodge the hits. You use culture and you use language and you use people's travels and you ask them where they're from. You're well-versed about global behavior. Yeah, well, uh, luckily I went boozing and backpacking internationally for at least 10 or 11 years across like 70-something countries, and then I fell into studying six or seven languages. So I figured, well, the odds are stacked in my favor that I know something unusual about somebody in this crowd. And it became more entertaining the more obscure the little story was I had. So when anyone here, I never ask anyone here from a country, I'm usually like, where are you from? And they'll be like, Nepal. And they'll be like, you obviously know nothing about Nepal. And I'm like, oh, that's where you're wrong. Cue some near-death experience in Nepal. And it's a lot of the time it, it jogs my own memory. It's not an actual bit that I have in stand-up. So I'm so excited to tell it in that moment and if the audience is on your side usually you can you could make it funny on the fly and there's nothing like the disappointment in their faces when there's no payoff at the end of the story whatsoever and there's no big ending here's an example but it's very sinister i'm totally obsessed with sharks and four weeks ago today i mean i love great white sharks more than probably interest me and fascinate me more than anything and I go kite surfing a lot. And we know they're round. We, you know, they're tagged and you can see them where you're around you. And you'll see shadows a fair bit when you're out there. And I have a friend, black fella, love kite surfing. So he'd be in rare in the first place and he'd stand out even more. He was so nice. This guy had a, a smile, like the happiest head you've ever seen on anyone. Just high on life, kind of very fascinating character, extremely friendly. He always come to the stand-up comedy shows, very supportive. And he'd wear a white wetsuit. And in general, you don't see, nobody wears a white wetsuit. They always wear a black wetsuit. But he was a black guy wearing a white wetsuit. So I was like, are you trying to make a political statement or something? Just joking (laughs) with him. He's like, yeah, that I'm not a SEAL. And we're like, okay, I agree with that one. Um, Three weeks ago, he went swimming after a wedding. He was in shoulder height uh, water swimming. He was with the groom of the wedding that he'd just been to a day after the wedding in, in Northern California, just north of San Francisco. He was swimming with two white friends, of course, without his wetsuit, and a great white shark swam up and ate him. Ate him, gone. Like he literally vanished. It's all over the media and the news oh, if, if you check wow. it out. Hmm. And he had an amazing backstory. He was he was from Gambia. He basically was 51, and he was one of the better kite surfers for speed that you'll get anywhere in the world. And he was looking for a kind of loophole to represent his country in the next Olympics that it looks like he was going to make. And to do so, he had to set up four different schools to qualify as a kite surfing nation. And then he'd be its sole representative in the Olympics. And it looked like that was going all ahead. And people love this fella. But it, it was so raw the other night. I was on a comedy stage somewhere. And I was like, I literally got the text message just before I went on stage in New York of the story. And I was like, oh, crap. And it's just so random. 
and so tied to everything I love, kite surfing, and I'm obsessed with sharks. And then how does obsession with sharks change when one of your friends just gets eaten by a shark? And what are the chances of that happening in the first place? And you'd mind that. You're like, there's definitely comedy in that, but it's so raw, you don't want to go there yet in any way, shape, or form. But yet you want to talk about it because it's such a bonkers thing to happen. And there's such an irony in it in the first place. So I think that stuff comes pouring out of me when I'm just chatting with an audience in an unrestricted way, where it's like, well, these emotions are in here and I'm going to have to tackle them somehow. And because I'm Irish, I'm probably not going to therapy anytime soon. So I better just have a chat with these people <laughs> who are assembled in front of me. And and that's kind of how it, it, it comedy became for me was just things that were were pertinent. The cultural observation, funny enough, that all made it into me talking about it because I was in Hollywood and I couldn't get on shows because they were diversity showcases. So it happened to me in San Francisco and it happened to me in LA that they were like, hey, we got enough white guys on the lineup. This is a show for diversity. I can't put you on there. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm the very definition of diversity being Irish. And they're like, no, 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 that doesn't count. So then I said, well, listen, if you, if you put me on, I'll just do a whole set based about how Irish means diverse. How about that? And then one fellow at the comedy store finally went, all right, go on, get on. And the kind of set was born out of just history and me telling them facts that they weren't aware of and just flipping the narrative a little bit on, hey, don't forget about us. A lot of this material that you're talking about can be seen in the special you have on YouTube, which is called Cultural Appreciation. And it's a new one. So I think it really gives people the vibe. I want to be sure they know they can find that. I've been enjoying watching what you're doing grow all the time. And I know you're headed into a new tour that you're calling the Shelf Help Tour. You're combining your comedy with reading recommendations. So the literature you've been taking in, it's Dave Nihill's book club and comedy concerts. Well, I figured it's going to be very hard to do comedy and kite surfing combined exclusively and bounce around the world talking about those things. So I was like, what other things can I mash up that I'd be talking about anyway if anybody listened to me, friends or strangers? And it always comes back to books. This sounds bad. I don't want to make fun of any particular place in America. But when we move here from another country, we don't envision ourselves being in St. Louis, Missouri, in the middle of nowhere doing comedy to 35 people. And a bunch of people just looking at you extremely confused when you're like, hey, I know you're meant to be a, a cultural melting pot over here, but you guys are looking strangely similar, all of you. It was just mm -hmm. to like, all right, how do I attract a more diverse crowd that's well-read and then talk about issues that, that, that I kind of like and they'd be excited about it? And I think the idea came out doing a show in Asheville, North Carolina. And every time I mentioned a book topic, I had no material, so I just went up for an hour with new stuff and see what comes out of my mouth. And every time I mentioned idea, I tried to link it to a book. And every time I said the author, they gave a scream that was bigger than any of the jokes I had because they were into it. And I just said, oh, well, let me keep going for an hour and just talk about books I like and link them to different ideas. And it, funny enough, like every, even the obsession with sharks can be linked back to one around San Francisco called The Devil's Teeth, which is an amazing story of these uh, shark researchers living on the Farallon Islands, which is like 26 miles off San Francisco out there, super remote. And they, they usually get the highest concentration of the largest great white sharks anywhere in the world because the seals, the elephant seals they're feeding off there are bigger than anywhere else. So although you get tons of great white sharks in South Africa, they kind of cap out four or four and a half meters. But if you go to the Farallon Islands, you'll get the bigger five, six meter ones cruising around because they're well fed out there. So that was a book called The Devil's Teeth that I was into. 
and then there's another one and then language gets linked to something else and before you know it all the things you really like or the things you believe were seeded in your head at some stage from books that you read that piqued that interest and I was like I wonder could I just give people that insight into my thought process and essentially if they leave with nothing else at the end of the show they'll have a recommended reading list that I think is fairly decent. By nature you are a storyteller. I feel like all of the humor you have is built around a series of stories. And I know that you wrote a book yourself that you shared with me called Do You Talk Funny? that's still available readily on Amazon. In it, you break down the seven comedy habits to become a better and funnier public speaker. So I was leafing through that knowing we were going to talk today. And when you create a story, a little bit about your comedy funnel, you sort of break down finding something relatable to start with. What's the importance of being specific and how you make a relation to storytelling? It's funny that you bring up the book as well, because I was just saying to a friend the other day, I wish I did. Do you talk funny? Sounds kind of interesting and cool. And then when you put the subtitle, seven comedy habits to be a better, more effective public speaker, I'm like, oh, God, it's like a really bad Tony Robbins self-help moment now. And then in Ireland, we've been taking the mickey out of self-help. Now we're better on it these days, but when I grew up, like you do not want to be the author of a self-help book. And then mine got put into the self-help category. Oh. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to be welcome to do comedy. I won't even get back into Ireland now. I'll turn up at the passport stamp and they were like, no, nah, go back to America, Tony Robbins. Let's put the subtitle aside for a second, though, because really that's the thing that stings. Well, I should have told the stories. Like Moonwalking with Einstein, one of the books I love about Joshua Four, where he wanted to study people who had great capacity to remember things. So he started going to these competitions and he effectively, from no experience, went to becoming the best mind in America for remembering things and became, I think, the 11th best mind in the whole world to remember things. But if you read his book, you wouldn't really know how to recreate what he did, but you knew all the characters within that world. Whereas I was drawing funnels, like you said, and, and the funnel he asked about was a way for me to figure out, okay, well, if people don't care about me, they won't care about my story, so I need to first find a way to make it relevant to them. So it's the funnel concept was to just find an opening line. And I think the same thing applies to TED Talks or any form of speech you might ever give, that if everyone in the room doesn't know who you are and they're not invested in you, you have to allow them to see themselves within the story. So if I say I went to China, they'll be like, well, I never went to China. I don't even like China. But I'd be like, being in a new place can be challenging. And then that opening statement is one that everybody can go, well, I've been in a new place. So, you know, in America, not everyone has left America and you have to be conscious of that fact. So if I'm like, oh, traveling overseas can be, they're like, well, I ain't got a passport. And I'm like, well, all right, fair enough. Let's change that one a little bit. So it became a funnel system to visualize a story and set up an intro where you're like as many people within this listening to it can see themselves as the protagonist in whatever I'm saying. And I guess the story element rang true for me because it was just easier to tell and more exciting to share experiences from my life. And I never really write jokes. I think I have like two actual jokes that I came up with once and I'm like, oh, that might pass as a joke. But yeah, if you know that immigration moment that most comedians have when they're going to Canada or something, they're like, oh, you're a comedian. Tell me a joke. I'm like, I don't really have one, but I have a nine minute waffly story that you may or may not enjoy. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. And also I'm out of my jurisdiction. If you were in the San Francisco comedy competition, you would be required to prove it at the border, you're not early on duty at that moment. But the relatability is something that Jerry Seinfeld and I used to talk about. When he would go on The Tonight Show, he would say, my car broke down. 
and everyone knows that. He wouldn't say my Porsche broke down, where you'd go, what an ass. Exactly. Literally changing that one word makes the difference of whether or not they're going to listen to the story or go, you had that coming, you rich jackass. We were helping at one stage. I had like a script writing business, kind of side hustle where we would punch up a lot of CEOs and leaders talks. And I remember doing, it was the CEO of GoDaddy at the time. And he was like, yeah, I was commuting to work on my jet. And I was like, all right, there's an obvious word that we're going to need to drop from that sentence. I'm pretty sure it's not commuting in the terms of relatability. So there ain't too many people out there commuting to work on a jet. So yeah, drop it and make it relatable. The funny thing that happens in comedy in the States, I think, is is to have a level of success here, you need the short form, punched up, Jerry Seinfeld style, relatable bits where you get so many laughs with so few words. And stylistically, I don't think that's what comes out of Ireland by nature because we're a whole country of storytellers and our industry isn't driven by late night television spots of five minutes. It's driven by turning over a new hour of stories or storytelling every year for the Edinburgh Comedy Festival. So there's no incentive for you to be working on the same five minutes and tightening it up repeatedly to get your one break like you do in America. And I think that's where you have those two different, very distinct styles might be rooted in the opportunity that those styles create. So for me, I wanted to do the storytelling from day one over here, but if nobody knows you, it's hard work to go in and bust out along, even if it's a really funny story on a crowd of predominantly strangers. But if 50% of those bought tickets and they brought their friends to come and see you and they're invested in you and you got your attention from the short form bits on social media, then I found that they'll turn up and quite happily listen to you do some big waffly spiel of stories, which I enjoy much more doing because it's more real. As you know, a cultural appreciation, then people are like, these stories are too nuts. And if you know any Irish person, normally they're leaving out half of the madness in there. Like the, the level it gets to, the, you're like, that's too crazy to be true. You're like, no, it's definitely true. And they've even left out details to save us some time here. So I kind of brought the receipts at the end of it, not to give it all away. But if you make it to the end of the, the content I have on cultural appreciation, you'll say, oh, there's here's all the receipts for the stories. Like this definitely happened. Yeah, when you visually can confirm it, it's a little bit like a police file on yourself, then what's interesting is not only do they believe what you're sharing, they believe everything because they say, well, this guy didn't start from nothing here. So I think that's a, I mean, it's a really brilliant way for the audience to take home another level of appreciation on the show when they do that. If they make it that long, if they haven't left on me at that stage, yeah. It's it's a good payoff to it because you're like, oh, like if I told you my friend was eaten by a shark, you'd be like, there's no way that happened. But then if you Google the story and you see the media around it and you have the images of it, and I have, I have a photo of him that's very powerful with a large kite with Black Lives Matter painted on it and him on his white wetsuit just shooting across the top of the water like a modern day Red Bull sponsored Extreme Jesus up there in Oregon in the Hood River in Portland. And then you're like, oh, that definitely happened. And I just think we hear a lot of crazy stories these days in life. And sometimes you're like, ah, I'm sure there's a semblance of truth in there uh, as opposed to, oh, well, that was nearly verbatim what happened there. Yeah. So the importance of details in storytelling, because there's combination of what we talked about earlier, which is to keep it generalized and bring people in. But once you begin to tell the story, the more details and attention to details and facts isn't that where the real colorful, nutritious stuff is? Yeah, I think so. Like, And to help them visualize it. So if you go back to your Jerry Seinfeld one where his car breaks down, what kind of car? Like, you know, when, when I was a kid, I had a Ford Fiesta at one stage. And I remember bringing this girl on one of the first dates I ever drove her on. It's a little blue 
1987 Ford Fiesta. It was horrendous. And at one stage we wound a window down and the window just fell into the door, never came back up. And then I did a U-turn and the exhaust fell off the car all on the same date. So I literally had her sitting there trying to look all attractive and I had the window down. So her hair is getting blown all over the place. And now she has an oily car exhaust. The only way I can get it in the car is to put it through the middle of the car and leave the boot open at the back. So it's literally between her shoulder and my shoulder driving along. And I just think everybody has that first car. There was a load of crap that broke down on them at some stage, unless they grow up wealthy or my dad used to pick us up for school in this old red Alfa Romeo and it would never start again. So we'd have to push start him away from the school as we draw off and not exactly style. Like you were stealing the car. It was like Flintstone style where you're just trying to push it with your legs or hanging out the door at the same time going along. <laughs> right. But I think it's the only way really when you're, you're telling a story that you have to allow the audience to see themselves in your shoes. And then that really becomes the details. Like what, what are the shoes? What, what are we talking here? What is mm -hmm. this moment? And you nearly owe it to them if you bring in characters. If the character is important, the, the person needs a name. And if they don't, you're kind of telling them like, well, they're, they're not important. That, that's not a big deal. And it does nothing like stand-up comedy to force you to take all those unnecessary details out because you'll lose them real fast, especially like 45 minutes into a set and they start dropping the checks in a comedy club and you're doing a long-winded story. The unnecessary details tend to get filtered out pretty quickly just by you going, well, that sucked. They didn't enjoy that one. I, be I better shorten it a wee bit. Yeah. Well, there is a moment in all of comedy, especially as you're closing shows and checks are dropping, where you kind of go either into a speed bag round where you're hitting them more frequently or you're taking the pause and playing the moment. You have to sometimes acknowledge that blender and that person pushing their chair back and go, hey, I'm here too. I know what's going on, right? As opposed to rushing over it. It jogged my memory the other night. I was like, well, it could be worse. I was recently in Brazil and I was, I was in uh, Salvador in Bahia, Northern Brazil. And it was years ago and there was a girl that I worked with at this large education company that was there. And she was like, oh, it's so safe, my city at the moment. The way they do the check drop there is at no moment do they make you pay for the bottles of beer. Every time you drink one, they put the empty bottle under your table and at the end of the night, they count them. And they can be a little bit sneaky up there in northern Brazil. And when they see you're getting slightly intoxicated as an Irish person, way too excited to be in Brazil, they will add bottles to your table. So nobody has paid any money. And the only way to settle is to count the empty bottles at the end of the night, right? And then as I, she was telling me how safe it was there, this seven gunshots went off right next to us. And the guy two tables over for us just dropped on the ground. And it literally had been a drive-by shooting on him while we were just about to settle the bill. So he's lying on the ground, blood all over him, still alive, but just about. And everybody else runs as fast as they can because they realize they don't have to pay their bill anymore. So they are out of there. And I literally now have about 400 bottles within my vicinity. And the girl that ran off, I didn't because I was kind of shocked by what I saw. I went over to, to see was the guy okay. And it wasn't long before the cops had come and it all transpired that this guy had been cheating on his wife and that his he was an off-duty police officer who was having a beer and she'd got his gun, come by, shot him seven times. Oh, get this part. She went home, slit her wrists because she didn't want to get arrested, but she didn't die either. And they put the two of them in the exact same ward to recover in the most Brazilian thing I've ever heard. 
And I was like, you know, check drops could be worse because I've been through a few dodgy ones in my life. And I, I think I'd forgotten that story until I was in an awkward check drop situation. And like I was in a New Brunswick, New Jersey, I think. And it was just true staring out that I, I kind of remembered, oh, well, I've definitely been through worse. Uh, it was in Brazil. Let, let me tell you what happened. So I, I just think over time, the act of doing comedy itself and being in those environments where you don't have everybody's full attention either teaches you how to deal with it or brings memories back where it could be a lot worse. Just like the kite surfing under the bridge. You're like, well, today could have ended a lot worse. I'm just happy to make it here to the show in the first place. Did your traveling in the U.S. begin with your concept of creating the real Irish comedy tour, which took you to other parts? Or had you already been touring plenty prior to doing that? I'd done a few individual shows as festivals in America. I think the idea started with there was a lot of comedy in America from Irish Americans that doubled down on all the negative stereotypes. And as a country, we kind of felt as Irish born people that we've moved on a fair amount from those kind of places. So when I'd say like, oh, we have a half Indian gay leader of Ireland, people are like, no, you don't. And I'd be like, well, we, we definitely do. And it, there was just a, a lot of things that brought Ireland from backwards to forwards really quickly. And when I went around these Irish festivals, of which there's, you know, over a million people attend Irish festivals in America every summer, I just realized the people organizing them, they weren't even second or third generation. At one of the festivals at the majority of the organizing committee were fifth generation Irish. So they were so far removed from what was modern day Ireland that they were booking stuff from like you know, a hundred years ago. It was stuff that we'd be like, ah, cheers, it's not more of that. And they'd be wearing kilts and doing log tossing competitions. And we were kind of confused by it all. So we're like, well, comedy might be a good way for us to feed in here and just allow us to tell them a little bit about how Ireland is these days in, in a funny way, but they'll actually leave it informed. So that, that was where the Real Irish Comedy Tour came from. We're like, well, let's go around as a bunch of Irish-born comics and, and let's create a system that allows Irish comedians to come over on a yearly basis and kind of refine their material for the U.S. market. Because there's obviously words you need to change, there's ideas you need to change, and you have to go from that storytelling structure to the faster payoff. Over here, you know, they won't put you in the clubs. Like, you get on in New York, they're expecting you to be slow-paced. They're nearly pleasantly surprised if you can do it quick. And they're like, oh, that's the style we're looking for here. And I think it's very hard to go from Irish style comedy developed over the longer era storytelling and be given a seven minute spot in Gotham Comedy Club and be like, all right, get up there and make them laugh every 10 seconds. It's funny you mentioned Jerry Seinfeld because I had to go on after him maybe four weeks ago. I think I mentioned it to you. But you nearly lay an egg as an Irish comic. You're like, oh, well, there is the master of all this and I'm going next for 15 minutes. He's on his home turf. He's wildly famous from them liking his television show as a character. And also he uses these places still as a workout space. He's not there to do the same exact thing he does that you're paying a hundred dollars a ticket to see in a concert tour. He does know there's a place where there's a safe living room environment. Maybe those places seat 150 people or something. That one is nearly 300, I think. And okay. the funny thing is he's so word perfect with all this stuff that even the stuff he's tested out, you know, he's written it 15 to 20 times over. So he's still murdering and they still love him. The thing I took away from watching him on stage was the funniest that American people I find are naturally skeptical of everything more so than irish people be like if you tell me a story well i assume that's true because you have no other reason for it not to be true and then the, the mc said oh we have a wonderful special guest tonight you know it wasn't an announced lineup you wouldn't believe who's here ladies and gentlemen give it up for jerry seinfeld and it's a very tepid response as a guy in a suit walks out in a hat 
and he kind of takes the mic stand and then he takes off the hat. And only at that moment, granted, it's a small room and it's well lit. You can see it's Jerry Seinfeld. But until he took off the hat and you heard the voice boom out of him that everybody recognizes. And then they literally just lost their mind applauding for about a minute. But not until he took off the hat did they believe that was Jerry Seinfeld in any way. I kind of like going after anyone in comedy. And it goes back to the book I was talking about, Moonwalking with Einstein, where you're basically using visuals and memories to create what he calls a memory palace in that book. And that's just turning anything you need to remember into a sequential order of connected stories where the elements interact with each other and you visualize them taking place somewhere. So I'd I'd watch his set and to see what components link into mine or is there any arguments I can build on. And luckily he's like, what morons built the Titanic? And I'm like, oh, I think my country knows a bit about that one. And to make it worse, the submarine was invented by a bunch of Irish engineers. So, you know, we're given topical news stories at the moment when he's talking about submarines and the Titanic. I'm like, well, I knew Irish people had a lot of influence on current news stories but we're definitely always there if you go digging for us it just allows you to make a show a more seamless connected conversation if you've been watching the people before you and because i don't really have any jokes or i don't have a set list or i don't have a specific order that i plan to follow i always watch the show rather than sitting in the green room getting more nervous so like i'm always watching everyone else man because i still love comedy at the end of the day. So I love to watch them. But then the ultimate show becomes like, oh, can I connect disconnected elements along with getting my own point across along with busting out some stories? And I think that was everything you've you've touched upon to this point a little bit. And then I guess what I'm doing in comedy while I'm in America is, is a connection of all those things. It's the cultural nuances. It's why am I talking about Ireland? Oh, because people didn't really know some of these things that I took to be and you can't assume it's common knowledge. Like Ireland's a little small country. Like I don't know what's new about New Hampshire or why North and South Dakota are so. It would be weird to expect me to know that. And so why would I expect that Americans know a lot about Ireland? A guy called Pat, I'd expect you to have some good knowledge, but. Well, here's what I can tell you. South Dakota is the lower one. Yep. <laughs> North is the one above it. That I know for sure. What's new about New Hampshire? I have no idea about that one. I'm not even sure where the original Hampshire was, but there must have been one that wasn't doing so well when everybody else said, let's move and create a new one. So, you know, when you talk about Jerry's craftsmanship with words, I paid him a compliment once that I remember because he's so specific that he rivets it together like a submersible, right? It has to be waterproof when he gets that piece of material. And he's well aware this thing is going to be able to be bulletproof in every which way. He doesn't necessarily know if they're going to go all the way that he goes. But once he gets into an area, he mines it for everything he can. And I remember him talking on this podcast about how he looks at a topic as if he's looking at it with a drone where he goes around it and he gets close to it and he goes above it. And that's really something for any writer or comic to do is not to walk away from the subject matter before you think about what does it sound like? What does it smell like? What was happening across the way? What does it look like from the moon? What does it look like under a microscope? Because there's so many places you can go once you really explore a topic, it's your passion for it. And that's, I think, why there's a thoroughness in it. And the one difference is that storytelling almost takes stamina. You got to be there for a longer period of time. So when you enter a thing like the Moth, I know that you were a runner up in the Moth's US Grand Slam storytelling competition. So in story, you have to be sure that you are rooted in truth and reality. You can't just throw in some random jokes to make that happen unless they're supporting that, call it the structure, the armature of the story, because 
like a TED Talk or any number of things, there's a point in the whole arc of it. When you're writing, a, thinking about a story for the moth, isn't that what it is? Is that the, the story has more merit and the jokes support it if they have to? Yeah, 100%. And I don't think I've ever told a story without taking 6 million tangents as well, because that's what's in my mind at that particular moment. So whenever I did the storytelling, I allowed as many tangents as possible. But the moth is quite different because you're on a six minute <laughs> time limit. And I just fell into it. I was trying to get on stage as many places as I could. And that was a good receptive audience. And I encourage any of your listeners, if, if you're keen to dip your toe in the water of, of live storytelling, the moth is pretty much the most supportive audience you can ever come across because they do score you live, the audience, but I think they're not allowed to score you under seven. So no matter how badly you do, you're falling or good, you're falling in the range of seven to 10 somewhere. So it's funny in Ireland, if you go to university, the highest grade you can get usually is 70%. Americans come over and they're emotionally traumatized. They're like, hey, man, what the hell here? I, I only got 70%. You're like, that's perfect. That's it. And I don't know how we came up with that logical scoring system for university. It makes no sense. But so the moth was my dream. So I'm like, oh, they'll never score me lower than the highest point ever. When you're doing the month, you force yourself to keep to the point a little bit more. I used to just have an opening line in mind and the end line. So what's the point of the story? Very last line and just work backwards in my head. And that would be the only preparation I do. I like tell the story like I'd always tell it, but how do I open it up to the largest amount of people at the start? And how do I make sure that first to third line are connected to the last line in a way that everybody knows it's over? So that they're applauding when you hit the last line because you've left enough clues for them to make the connections. Just because I don't write them out, I just speak them. So that banging words together, like you were saying with, with Jerry Seinfeld, I love doing that live on stage riffing on any topic and just pushing words that make no logical sequence try and go together and bounce off each other and just take the audience's mildly disappointed and confused faces as I just keep it going until you finally landed on something that gets you that applause. And that is by far my favorite thing to do in comedy. As a, If I sat down and tried to write them, I'd never come up with any of the things. They just come from speaking it out. Like I remember going Ireland so friendly, we don't even have a Chinatown. We just let them live with us. And I was like, God, that makes so much sense retrospectively. I don't know why I mumbled it out, but it just popped into my head at that moment. And I think some of the best lines to illustrate some of your points can just happen that way rather than trying to wordsmith every single word. You're like, well, here's the idea in its raw form. Does it work in that form or do we need to add more words? I read the other day, like 60% of Americans are estimated to be living from day to day. And I was like, well, if you want to take the positive spin on that because of pronouns, that might just be two people. Uh, when you think about it. So there's a semblance of a funny idea in there, but I, I don't know how to get to it. And if I tried to write it out, I never would. But I think if I tried to speak it out enough times in enough disappointing faces that finally I'd be like, oh, that's the idea we're getting to here, that America takes you to force whatever it is on a positive spin. And I, I think the stories have the same ability to do that, but be a lot more impactful. So you can kind of wrap those little nuggets of joke ideas within the story, but keep the story to the story armorage and tell it in a way that it relates to the largest amount of people picturing that funnel analogy and starting the story with the end in mind. So you're like 100%, I know where I'm going with this. Like, what's the point of doing it? I think it's a, it's a bit of a complicated waffle, but I think that makes it the most impactful if you actually force yourself to talk about all that rather than just going up and going, here's an old story about a shark. Right, but you win the San Francisco comedy competition just before... 
the pandemic sets in. For those who don't know, the San Francisco comedy competition had winners like Robin Williams, Ellen DeGeneres, Dana Carvey over the years. And it really typically launches into opportunities of touring and being invited to lots of things. But you're suddenly faced with cancellations every direction. Well, mine was a year before, but I it was just starting to open some doors. I think I recorded initial special for dry bar comedy, and then I was dipping the toe in in L.A. and in a few fine venues, thanks to lovely people like yourself making a few recommendations here and there. We had a whole booked Irish tour. We had a couple of Irish comedians coming over for it. We were literally in the car on March 9th, I think, on the way to a sold-out San Jose Improv when all the dominoes started to fall. And we were like, oh, man, it's going to be the first march in history where corona has trumped guinness and nobody saw that one coming and just one gig fell after another after another and yeah so it it definitely killed a little bit of momentum i mean that comedy competition isn't what it was by any means of the caliber of the people that used to enter it but the, the interesting thing about it the process is still the exact same and it's so emotionally traumatizing doing it, getting in your car and clocking up like three to 5,000 miles, driving to gigs that are all not in San Francisco for some strange misleading advertising. It's the very much Northern California comedy competition when you end up driving it. But you end up doing like 15 to 16 shows against very good comics and they're they're scored every single night and the crowds are extremely different. So I guess it, it just teaches you to yourself going, oh, Maybe I am okay at this. Like maybe there is a way to make an income from this because if you're in places like the Luther Burbank Theater to 1,600 people where Dana Carvey and George Carlin recorded their specials and Ellen and, and you know, you're, you're like, oh, I'm doing well here. And it, as sad as competitions are when it comes to comedy, it kind of validates yourself that you might be okay at this because realistically up to that point, I'd never put anything on social media. So there's no real way to judge if you actually have any in, in skill on this one or not. And it probably the upside of all the canceled gigs was me sitting on a bunch of footage that I had and friends going, well, why don't you put some of the stuff on the internet at least? And TikTok had literally just come out that March. So I think I got a little bit lucky that I was sitting on all these bits that had an Irish team to them in the first March ever to get canceled in the world where people had that Irish interest, but no ability to go to parades or festive events or anything. And I said, well, put out a clip every day for a month and see what happens. And yeah, that stuff went bonkers uh, viral for some stroke of madness. And that kind of opened up all the touring opportunities that I didn't get to take advantage of un until all the COVID stuff had passed. You had actually returned to Ireland uh, and on a respite. And, and I feel like you really studied that. What, because you were dropping one a day and watching it, you really watched TikTok and Instagram and Facebook. Because when we came back together, some couple of years later, you really had making strides. Social media is a very hungry machine, and they change their criteria sometimes. You'll suddenly get a smash of things going out, and then if they notice you're doing well, do they change that rhythm for you, or what, what happens? Yeah, it's funny. I just, I really don't like social media and I don't want to ever take out a phone and be like, look at me, I'm having my lunch right now. Here's all the glorious parts of my life. Like there's loads of mad stuff happening as well, but I'm not going to share that with you. So why just give people the, the one-sided story? So I kind of shied away from it and everyone getting attention on social media was, they were kind of putting, living their lives on there and I didn't want to do that. But I'm like, I have stand-up clips and stand-up clips only 
can you still get a level of traction by only doing this, by not giving in to all the other stuff? I'm not going to do a dance. I'm not newsjacking. It's not my head speaking over somebody else's video. It's solely stand-up clips, and they're the only things I'm going to post. And for the most part, that's what I've been doing. They got social traction. The algorithms change a fair amount with it over time. But in essence, the, the structure of it is still the same. The things that change for any of your people listening, going, well, what do I keep an eye on? You're always best looking to marketers other than comedians if you're trying to replicate. So that the people who run the comedians' accounts, the large-scale ones, if they're not running themselves, their livelihood is to be on the forefront of those trends. So TikTok will launch a program and they're like, all right, now we want 90 seconds and longer videos and we'll reward those more than 50 seconds and longer so i uploaded one the other day of, of 90 seconds mashing a few together and sure enough that one goes viral and um, because they're incentivizing that thing so you just have to be aware of those trends what's popular what's interesting how long the content they want it to be and then that meets high quality video and audio plus consistency will usually give you some form of results and for anyone listening, thinking of doing it, I would say the things I learned the hard way from it or that I just got lucky with was to just treat the comments on your videos like your car. Like if somebody spray paints wanker on my old Ford Fiesta, I'm not going to keep driving it around with the word wanker written on it. I'm going to wipe it off. And I think a lot of people just don't look at the comments at all. They just drive the social media engine. But if you're the first one to comment on your videos and you know, well, if I post this, there's going to be some negative reaction. If you think about it long and hard enough, you can come up with something funny that acknowledges the potential negativity in it. And then that becomes the most upvoted comment. So anyone else who comes to your social media page can see that you are active on there. And you probably should be active on there if, if you're trying to glow some kind of community on there. So that one helped me a ton. You know, I'm dyslexic, so it was taking me so long to write these messages back. I remember making one about making fun of mountain biking. And I was like, Americans just create their own rules for mountain biking and they love it. You can't stop these white fellas called Chad and Chip and Ryan getting out there covered in cliff bars and spandex and going up hills unnecessarily. And one of the first comments was Chris Froome. And it just said, you made me question my whole life, like Chris Froome, OBE, Tour de France champion. I would have never known that was in the comments if I wasn't paying attention to them. And it, it, anything, it opened up more positivity than it ever did negativity. But I think to benefit from that, you have to really engage with people and you have to address any potential negativity at the start of your bits and you just have to be active on their building relationships because that, that's why you started at the first place. Now, it does get to a scale where it's kind of hard to do but you, you can still do it. I manage all mine still, and I do everything. And if anyone writes back on there, it is me. And I'm always surprised that they write like a third-party review for me on my page. And I'm like, you know who you're talking to here? And who are you writing this for? That's funny. Well, the engagement really is critical. And this returns us to something we said earlier when you talked about relatability and can they see themselves in it. I feel like when they're the most thrilled to contribute is when they say, oh, something like that happened to me. Oh, I had that. And then they relate a little story of their own because now they're sort of joining a forum. And this happens with Nate Bargatze and some of the other storytelling comics that are out there that are on the rise. People, they feel like the comic is their friend and they want to be part of the community. They're not just a cheerleader at, at a distance. 
they're sort of joining the round table. They're not just a passive consumer anymore. They're like, oh, this is me. So I, I got a little bit lucky with the advent of DNA testing in 23 and me in America because it ultimately everybody's default answer is Irish. Like I, I like to picture a bunch of old people retired in Florida just making up 23 and me results and then they have 4% left and they're like, well, let's throw in Irish. Nobody will ever question that. But when people get these results, they're genuinely curious. Well, what does that mean? Like I, I, I was going around pretty sure I was black my whole life and now I'm 39% Irish. How did that come to be? Like, well, what's going on there? What's the cultural crossover there? Funny enough, it came from social media when I saw, you'll know the story because you would have saw some of uh, Morgan Bullock's videos, but she was the American Irish dancer that was basically getting abuse online for cultural appropriation solely from Americans, never from Irish people. So then number one question is, why aren't the Irish too worried about her doing Irish dancing? And the thing is, well, one, we want people to be doing Irish activities around the world. So many people have an element of Irish heritage that we want to encourage that. But equally, black and Irish people created tap dancing together. So if anything, she's bringing this full circle and by doing it to Megan the Stallion music, making it even cooler. And that became a lot of the stuff I was talking about. And then all these black Irish dancers came out of the woodwork and they're like, oh, this is great. We like this story, too. We want it to be to amplify it. So I, I think people started to see themselves in the story that never thought they'd be in the story. They didn't think it applied to them at all. So Mexicans and Irish would be a good example when you have a boxer like Canelo in the world with red hair and his real name is Barrigan. There's a lot of suspiciously looking Irish pasty Mexicans around the world. And all of a sudden they're like, ah, oh, it might be because of this Irish battalion in Guadalajara back in the day. Let me dig into this. So, so it's funny, even with younger audiences, they go back to facts and history and stories that they never knew just to really complete their own story. And that's the part of comedy I like a lot that can be a bit powerful where you can actually connect people as opposed to dividing them. Everyone's all about diversity these days, and that's great. There's no downside to diversity, unless you take the flip argument and you're like, well, if we emphasize how different people are all the time, we're forgetting that we're nearly pretty much the exact same as a group of humans. And we'll probably have less fights if we're emphasizing all the things that make us similar as opposed to make us different. So I think in comedy, you have a choice to which one of those sides to speak to. And I always try and lean on the positive and put elements in the stories that people are like, oh, that's me. I'm that. That explains something to me. I never knew that. That's interesting. And in a format that they can retell it for you. Because if they can't retell it for you and get some fun out of that and some easy laughs themselves, then usually it's not as powerful a bit of content as you thought it was. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story today and the bigger universal story of humanity and how people respond to this sort of thing. Those that are curious where you're going to be on the Shelf Help Tour can go to davidnyhill.com where there's a whole laundry list of places that you're... <laughs> yeah, I got carried away. Yeah, it's all right. Some of those rural towns, I don't think you'll be kite surfing in, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'll try. But yeah, I think it's like 50 cities and 12 countries and growing. So it's getting interesting. So I better get reading some books between now and then. Yeah. And then also, if they want to watch the special on YouTube, it's called Cultural Appreciation. And you can find it very easily uh, by putting David Nihill in your YouTube search engine. Thanks so much, Dave, for just being an awesome longtime friend and a great storyteller. Oh, thanks a million. Always fantastic chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing and crafty co-producing by Tucker Hazel. 
The original music theme was created and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Diane Johansson, Tony Deo, and Tanner Dykstra. Please feel free to dash off a review on social media to help grow this creative community. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right, dot fun, as in dot was so fun. Bye for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage.